You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, well, we're diving into the doctrine of the Trinity today, so just before I get started so I know how fast to go through what I have prepared, who has come here today with questions about the Trinity? Raise your hand if you already have questions about the Trinity. Okay, one person. All right, great. So I basically have the whole class to go through what I've prepared then. What we're going to do, and maybe in going through some of this, this will spark questions. So feel free to raise your hand at any time if you have questions about the Trinity or what I'm covering or you don't quite understand it, because we're going to go through a little bit of review of what we covered last Sunday in discussing the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of the Trinitarian concepts and ideas just to make sure that we are real clear about what we talked about last Sunday. I'm going to give you some illustrations of error, talk about an error that I didn't mention last Sunday, and then try and sort of bring it all together. So... Um, one of my kids lost my little clicker from my presentation, so every time you see me do this, that's Deidre's signal to advance to the next frame. This is our definition of the Trinity that I gave you last week. Within the one being that is God, there eternally exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Eternally, it shouldn't be in there twice. Co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, Within the one being, that's our monotheism of God, there exists eternally three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So those are our three foundations. Foundation one, there is only one God. Foundation two, there are three divine persons. And foundation three is those three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So we will oftentimes make reference to the eternal sonship of Jesus. Theologians speak of the eternal sonship of Christ. And what they mean by that is that for all of eternity, the Son has existed as the Son in relation to the Father as the Son. And for eternity, before ever there was anything, as far back as your mind can go, back before the beginning of everything, eons and eons and eons before that, from eternity past, when there was only God, there existed three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three were co-equal, and they are co-eternal, which means they have always existed, all three persons. And the Son has always related to the Father as the Father. The Father has always related to the Son as the Son. And the Spirit has always been in relation to the Father and the Son as the Spirit. At no time did the Son ever become the Son. He was not made the Son. He did not become the Son at His incarnation. He was the Son before He ever came into the world. That is the eternal Sonship of Jesus. Now, technically, it's not what we would consider a heresy to deny the eternal Sonship of Jesus. Technically, but it can become heresy very quickly when you start to flesh it out. So, next we're up. Those are our three foundations. Now, next slide. This is fun, isn't it? you got to thank my kids for losing my clicker. By the way, we lost the clicker because the Jensen's lent us their dog for three nights, and we used the little laser on the thing to, to chase it around the floor, so it became a toy for like a week, and it never got put back where it should. I don't know where it's at today. So you can think of our three foundations as three sides to a pyramid. And those three words, polytheism, subordinationism, and modalism, are three very common errors that sort of grow up around the Trinity. We talked last week about modalism. 
We're going to go into modalism a little bit more in more detail today. And we're going to talk about these other two errors as well. So you see the, the triangle, the equality of the persons, the three persons, and the one God. So when we eliminate any one of those three truths, you will see that the arrow points to the error that comes up when you eliminate the truth. So if you eliminate the foundational truth of monotheism, what you're going to be left with is the doctrine of the Trinity that results in polytheism, and that's an error. So polytheism basically is the belief that there exists more than one God, that we have the Father is a God, the Son is a God, and the Holy Spirit is a God. And if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, that is, they either believe, they either think we believe in polytheism or modalism, and it doesn't make any sense to them. Most Jehovah's Witnesses, most people who reject the Trinity, do not reject the actual biblical doctrine of the Trinity. What they reject is one of these three errors that we're talking about. So if you eliminate or you get wrong monotheism, if you remove that foundational truth, then you are left with polytheism, which is the belief that there is more than one God. So a Jehovah's Witness or somebody who rejects the doctrine of the Trinity will sometimes claim that we believe in three gods. We believe that there are three persons who are all God, and they cannot understand how those three are one. So they think that we believe in three gods. The Father is a God, the Spirit is a God, and the Son is a God. So we are polytheists. So true polytheistic religions would include Hinduism, New Age, and Mormonism. Mormonism is a polytheistic religion. They would say we only worship one God, but in reality Mormonism has millions of gods in millions of universes and millions of galaxies, all who have their own wives and are populating their own planets. Mormonism is at its core a polytheistic religion. So I'm not going to go into any detail about trying to prove to you there's only one God. I would assume, from the scripture reference up here, you can see it, Isaiah 44, the king of Israel and the Redeemer says, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Is there any rock, any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of not one. So there is only one eternal, true, and living God. And every other God, every other conception of God is an idol. So back to our three foundations and the three errors that creep up around. Remember, if we eliminate monotheism, our arrow points to polytheism. Next, if we eliminate the three persons side of the triangle, then we are left with modalism. Modalism is what I talked about last week, that there is within the being of one God, one person who manifests himself three different ways or play acts, as it were, three different roles. So like an actor who would come onto the stage and wear a mask and play one part and then wear, play, wear a mask and play another part, so is God who manifests himself this way and then he manifests himself this way and then he manifests himself this way. So a modalist, modalism is the idea that God manifests himself in three different ways, namely as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Father, the terms for a modalist, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not describe the individual persons. To a modalist, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit describe the relationship that God has with his creatures. Okay, let me say it again. To a modalist, Father, the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not are not indicative of three separate persons. They are indicative of how that one person relates to people in three different ways. Just like the term father, brother, and son can all be applied to me, but they don't describe three different persons. They describe one person, but they also describe how I relate to different groups of people. To my mother, I am a son. To my sister, I am a brother. To my children, I am a father. That's how a modalist says that God is. Let me give you an example of it. Sorry, you're waiting for the clicker, weren't you? Randy Phillips of Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Somebody asked me this last week. You know, you just you say these guys are heretics, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, which they are. And I say that they are heretics not because they simply have a hard time describing a very difficult doctrine. 
I say that Randy Phillips and Dan Dean and Craig, whatever his first name is, I'm not sure, those men are heretics because, listen, they understand the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And they can articulate the biblical doctrine of the Trinity as well as I am here. And then they say, that's not true. This is true. And then they articulate modalism. They understand the truth. They can articulate the truth. And they will say, this is how some people view the Trinity. But then they will say, this is not the true God. The true God is this. And then they describe a modalistic perspective. So in on Randy Phillips' website, look at this. We believe in one God who is eternal in His existence. We would agree with that. One God, monotheism, right? Eternal in His existence. Triune, triune in His manifestations. Not triune in His persons. Triune in His manifestations. That's how He manifests Himself. Being both Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that is the one God who is those manifestations, or that is the manifestations are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and that He is sovereign and absolute in His authority. Dan Dean's website says, There is one true God that has manifested Himself as Father in creation, Son in redemption, and Holy Spirit in emanation. Now you see the difference between saying there are three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, and exist eternally, and saying there is one God who has manifested Himself? That the term manifest or modes or relationship, those are terms that modalists use. And they are not describing just a fine distinction in the doctrine of the Trinity. They are describing an entirely different God. An entirely different God. We believe God is one being, three persons. They believe He is one being, one person who manifests or plays three different roles in relationship to you and I. Are there any questions about this, about modalism? Phillips, Craig, and Dean? Okay. T.D. Jakes is another modalist. He is a heretic. There is a difference between... uh, Somebody asked me this last week, so let me clarify this. There is a difference between being an informal heretic and a formal heretic. So here's an informal heretic. An informal heretic is somebody like you or I who, in trying to articulate and understand the doctrine of the Trinity, we might use the, the analogy of an egg, which actually is a heretical analogy. So we might use the analogy of an egg, but we would be wrong to do that. What we'd actually be describing, not intentionally, is a heretical idea of God or a heretical notion of God. That's actually tritheism. Or the analogy of me being a father, son, and a brother to somebody. That's a heretical analogy. That analogy describes a heresy about God, something that's not true about God. I might do that in ignorance as a brand new Christian, well-intentioned and well-meaning, and be wrong and be unknowingly describing a heretical notion of God. That would be informal heresy. I, I understand the doctrine of Trinity, but informally, in my lack of understanding, I'm actually using wrong terms in a wrong way and saying something that's untrue about God, even though in my mind I'm trying to commu- I, I have a true picture. That's an informal heretic. A formal heretic is somebody who sees the truth, knows the truth, can articulate the truth, and says that's not the truth, this is the truth, and instead postulates error. That is a formal heretic. Randy uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, T.D. Jakes, are formal heretics. They can articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, let me go one more slide here. Next one. In the Inquirer's Handbook by Randy Phillips, he actually does this. He, he describes the biblical doctrine of the Trinity that I'm describing to you. He calls that wrong and instead puts another view of God out. In other words, God appeared in the flesh as a son, the Father. Uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are simply three manifestations of one God. You yourself may be manifested as a son to your father, a husband to your wife, 
and a father to your children. As an individual person, you may be manifested in various ways. And likewise, the Almighty God is manifested as the Father, a Son, and the Holy Ghost while He remains indisputably, undeniably one. So that is the, that is the heretical doctrine of modalism. And these men are not informal heretics. They are formal heretics. <laughs> they clearly understand what we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. And they reject it knowingly, willingly, self-consciously. Jess, did you have... It would be error. You can have you can have a biblical understanding of the Trinity and err in how you communicate that or teach that or say that and speak that. But yet, what you're you're not trying to do that. You just don't understand the fine distinctions enough to know that okay, my analogy is really communicating something that is heretical. Because I have used all of the analogies and illustrations I gave you last week and I've given you this week. I used all of those 15, 20 years ago when I was learning the doctrine of the Trinity and trying to articulate that to somebody else. And I would use those to a Jehovah's Witness. I did that unknowingly, never once denying any of my three foundations. What I didn't understand was that the analogies I was using and what I was trying to communicate were in actuality denials of those three foundational truths. That's what we mean by aberrant or an informal heretic. You, you, you understand truth, you get it, you believe it, you embrace it, and when you see it in Scripture, you say, yeah, I welcome that, I wouldn't reject that, I understand Jesus is God, He's fully equal with the Father, one being, three persons, co-eternal, co-equal, all of that. You get all of that, you embrace all of that, but in trying to articulate it, you do it in a wrong way. That doesn't make you damned, it doesn't make you lost, it doesn't make you a formal heretic, it just means that you've erred in explaining a very complicated truth. But when you are able to articulate, as well as a, a biblical Trinitarian, the doctrine, the true doctrine, and then you say, that is not true. Instead, and you put something, error in its place, you're no longer just confused. You're actually postulating heresy. Okay, next next slide. So we've got our three foundational truths. If we eliminate monotheism, we're left with polytheism. If we eliminate the three persons, we're left with modalism. If we eliminate the equality, then we are left with what is called subordinationism. This is different than subordination. There is subordination within the Trinity. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. We're going to get into that a little bit more in the sermon today. But the doctrine of subordinationism is the teaching that the Father is superior to the Son and the Spirit in nature and in essence. Okay? So you have the Father who is superior in His nature and in His being, superior to the Son and the Spirit. That's subordinationism. That is a denial of the equality of all three persons. It means that two of them are inferior to the other one. Jesus is a lesser God or a divine being that does not share the nature and the essence of God. And so people who believe in subordinationism, of course, deny the equality of the Son with the Father. And they would say when Jesus is called Lord or God in Scripture, it's simply an honorific. It's a title that's used to sort of honor that individual in a way, though he does not share the same nature as the Father. And that's what uh, Jehovah's Witness would say of places where Jesus is called Lord or where Jesus is called God, he's used it in a, not to describe his nature, but just as an honorific, a title that is given to him because he is such an exalted being. A lesser God, not a God, not, not the God, but a God, so a lesser being than the Father, though very divine, very divine, more divine than the angels, less divine than the Father. That would sort of be subordinationism. Okay? So, if we have all three of our foundations in place, then there are no errors about the doctrine of the Trinity. So before we go on to look at a few biblical texts quickly, are there any questions about any of those three errors or what I've said thus far? Jenny? Examples of denominations are people who believe in subordinationism. Can you think of any? 
I don't know of any within Christian within prominent within Christianity right now. There might be some, you know, Westboro Baptist type denomination out there that believes in something like this, some little house church somewhere. The the main threat to the Trinity today is modalism. But it is because, and when I read when I read a doctrinal statement, somebody sends me a doctrinal statement, what do you think of this church? What do you think of this organization? I get those periodically. I don't mind looking over doctrinal statements for people. When I read the description of the Trinity, I'm looking for words like manifestation or mode or relation. Because those are those are modalistic catchwords. If you see those in a doctrinal statement, God is manifested three different ways rather than three different persons. You're looking for three persons, not one person, three persons. The big threat today with one is Pentecostalism, which is a denomination of, and that's what T.D. Jakes is, and that's what uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean are all one is Pentecostals. Modalism is the big threat to the doctrine of the Trinity today. There are probably little fringe groups out there that are polytheistic and probably some fringe groups out there that are subordinationistic, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. Okay? Jess? Arianism, uh, yeah, Arianism is basically a modern-day Jehovah's Witness. Arian taught in the second or third century that Jesus was a created being. He had a beginning and an existence, and he was not equal with the Father who was created, and then God used him to create all things. Modern-day Arians would be Jehovah's Witnesses. They are basically a photocopy of the ancient doctrine of Arianism. Arianism was condemned as a heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Um, uh, Constantine called a church council together because Arianism was splitting the church. There were people who were confused about the doctrine of the Trinity and who Jesus was. And Arianism was condemned. And from that you get the phrase of the Nicene Creed, um, Jesus Christ is one substance with the Father begotten, not made, um, very God of very God, and that whole explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. So Arianism would be the uh, it would be subordinationism. That would be a good example of subordinationism. But Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian denomination. They're heretical cultic sect. Okay, any other questions? All right. So let me just go over a few basic biblical texts where you can see all three persons of the Trinity uh, mentioned. John 3, 34 and 35, For he whom God has sent speaks the words, words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Listen, Trinitarianism is so packed into the New Testament, you and I read through it, we don't even think about it. There are mentions to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit within verses of each other where all three are given the qualities of God. And we read through them. They don't even, they don't even hit our eyes anymore. Next, John 14, 6, I, that is Jesus, will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. And the helper in that context is the Holy Spirit. Next. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and will bring to remembrance all that I said to you. See all mentions, all mentions of all three persons there? John 15:26 When the helper the Holy Spirit comes whom I will send to you from the Father that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father he will testify about me. Can you go back one slide real quick? Go back to the back arrow. Does that work? Oh, there we are. Okay, well, I want you to notice something in this. I want you to read this verse over with the next verse real quick and I want you to see if you notice something. We're going to compare two verses side by side. John 14:26, John 15:26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Next. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from me, from the Father, he will testify of me. Lynn? There you go. 
In the first one, it says the Father will send the Holy Spirit. In this one, it says Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit to you from the Father. Okay? That's an, that's an important Trinitarian concept. The Spirit is sent by whom? By God. But Jesus could say the Father is sending him, and he could say, I am sending him. Why? Because it is true. Both of those persons are God. Okay, next one. John 16, 13 through 15. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you, what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Do you see the... You see the pronouns just packed into that thing? Three persons. Jesus is speaking of the Father and the Spirit using third-person personal pronouns of all three members of the Trinity. Three distinct persons. If you're a modalist, does this passage make any sense to you at all? It can't. Unless you have one person speaking of multiple personalities. But God doesn't have multiple personality disorder. All right, next. Matthew 3, 16 and 17, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at the baptism of Jesus. The Father speaking from heaven, the Spirit descending like a dove, and Jesus there, and the Father saying about the Son, This is my beloved Son. How does a modal, how do you understand that as a modalist? God saying, about himself, that he's pleased with himself? That doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if you understand three separate persons. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, name, one name, not the names of, but one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Basically what Jesus was doing when he gave this great commission is he was saying to his disciples, the God that you have known is Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am now telling you, You are baptizing people in His name. And what is His name? How do we know the God of the Old Testament? We know Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the God of the Old Testament. Now fully we understand that He is three separate persons. That one God, Yahweh, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are the names we know Him by. Next up. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is just, it's in every book. It's all over the place. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Three persons. See that? It's incredible. It's all over the place. Next. So here's a little chart, and I borrowed this from a presentation. You can get this on Wretched Radio if you go to their favorites page. Um, Scroll down. It's in Trinity. There's a little PDF uh, thing on the Trinity that kind of walks through it. I cut and pasted this chart from that, so I'm trying to give credit where credit is due, because I didn't come up with this, but... I could have if I'd taken the time, but it's easier just to cut and paste. Divine attributes, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, and creator are used of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit equally. All three are the creator, all three are omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. So therefore, the only omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnipresent being who is the creator is God. Therefore, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. Let me describe to you just for in a second the difference between personhood and being. We have a hard time dis- making a differentiation between personhood and being. A worm is one being and zero persons. A human is one being and one person. God is one being and three persons. This book has being. It has existence. It has a nature. But it doesn't have personhood. So a worm has being. It has the being of a worm, the nature and the existence of a worm. But a worm doesn't have personhood. Man has one being, like the worm, but he has also one person, 
God is one being, but He is three persons. You catch this? Now, if you were a worm and you were trying to understand how a... See, this is this analogy this is hard, isn't it? Because worms can't understand anything, can they? But if you were if you were a worm and you were trying to understand and you were looking up at a human being, you'd say, "How is it possible for something to be one being and one person?" That's so far above me, I can't understand. I'm just a worm. Of course, if a worm were thinking and he had an understanding, he would be a person. But bear with me. I know this analogy limps a little bit, or maybe crawls a little bit. A, a worm is one being and zero persons. And a worm could never understand or grasp how something could be being and person together like you and I are. We have a hard time understanding how God can be one being and three persons because He is infinitely farther above us than we are of a worm. The distance between a worm and a man is finite because we are both created beings. We share that. The distance between God and us is infinite. It cannot be bridged. So just as a worm would not understand how something could be of one being and one person, so we cannot fully understand how something can be one being and three persons at the same time. But that is how God has revealed himself to us. Okay, quick. Before we go on, any questions about that? Distinction between being and persons? Everybody following me so far? Okay. we got a little bit of time here, then we're going to do some Q&A at the end of this. I want to describe quickly, and I've got to move through this quickly, the difference between ontological trinity and economical trinity. Two different theological terms that describe two different aspects of the trinity. If you understand these two theological terms, you understand what they're describing, then as you read through the New Testament, you're going to say, okay, what's being described here is ontological trinity, and then what's being described here is economical trinity. So let's deal first with ontological trinity. The word ontological simply means, or ontology is just simply the study of being. You want to study what it means to be a being? That's ontology. When we speak of something's ontology, we speak of its nature of being. Ontological trinity describes the trinity as it exists in and of itself. Now, most of what I described last Sunday in the sermon... And most of what I'm describing here is what we refer to as ontological trinity. That is how God exists in and of himself. When we say there is one God, three persons, the three persons are all equal, what I am describing is the being or the existence of God himself, his ontology, his being. He is one being that exists eternally and co-equally, co-eternally as three persons. That is his ontology. That is his state of being. Okay? Next, economical trinity. Economical trinity is the, economic simply refers to the operations or workings. So when we speak of the economical trinity, what we're describing is the workings or the doings of God. When we talk about the economic trinity, what we mean is how God gets things done. How is it that God does things? Well, if you read through scripture, you find that the Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit sanctifies. So you see these three persons working distinctly from one another. There are certain things that only the Father is said to do. And there are certain things that only the Son is said to do. And there are certain things that only the Spirit is said to do. But God does all of those things. So when we think of the Trinity, we have to keep in mind, we have three persons who are all working distinct from one another, but coordinately with one another. And this is We're going to get into this more today in John chapter 5 when Jesus says, I can't do anything of myself. And what he's saying is, I don't act independent of the Father. It's not like you have the Father off doing this thing here and checking every once in a while in with the Spirit and the Son, and the Son is off doing His own thing, checking in every once in a while with the Spirit and the Father, and the Spirit's off doing His own thing. We're not talking about three renegade persons who are all doing their things and hoping that in some way they coordinate. We have one God who exists as three persons. Each of those three persons is doing certain functions, certain acts, but God is doing all of that. All of that is the work of God. Is it the work of God to elect us? Yes, it is. Was it the work of God to redeem us on the cross? Yeah. Jesus Christ paid the price for the church with His... Well, God paid the price with His own blood, Acts 20. 
Is it the work of God to do sanctification? It is. God does all of these things. God has done all of these things. He elected us, He redeemed us, and He has sanctified us. Yet, it is the Father who is electing, and the Son who died on the cross. The Spirit of the Father did not die on the cross. And the Spirit who sanctifies us and draws us to Christ. So when we describe economic trinity, we're describing the way that God works, how each person of the trinity works in distinction from the other members, but coordinately together as God. Is this blowing you away yet? You say, I'm done. I've been planning lunch for the last ten minutes. All right, next. I'm going to read to you real quickly the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed. Now listen, it wouldn't matter if I were to quote to you the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Creed of Chalcedon or the Athanasian Creed or Creedence Clearwater Revival. It really doesn't matter which creed that we quote because the, the, the reality is that a creed is only at best a distillation of theology. A creed can only serve to sort of take all of the teaching of Scripture and systematize it and put it down into a very concise, a very accurate, a very efficient way of stating truth. Creeds always came out of, and this is how creeds were formulated in the early church, an error would creep up. And the Christians would say, well, listen, we never believed that. And the people who formulated the heresy would say, no, no, this is what, this is what truth is. And the people who were actual Christians would identify and say, that's error. How do we know that that's error? Well, they would get together and say, this is what the church has always taught. We believe this, 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 and this is error because it does not fit with what the church has always taught. That's how creeds were by and large formulated. So the Athanasian Creed, whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith except every one do keep whole and undefiled without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. This is what I said last week. We can be wrong as Christians about a lot of things, but this is not one of them. You have the doctrine of God wrong. You believe wrong things about Jesus. You don't have the Father and you don't have the true God. So if you want to be saved, you must be able to affirm fully and finally everything that is to be affirmed about the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And the Catholic faith is this. And by Catholic, they don't mean Roman Catholic. They mean Catholic as in universal, because that word is kind of abused by the Roman Catholic Church. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So when I get to the end of it, unless I say stop, just go ahead and click to the next one. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Remember last week I told you the three persons are not one. That would be to confound the substance. Nor do we say that part of the, the Holy Spirit is part of God and the Father is part of God and the Son is part of God and you can divide them up. It's not that they share like pieces of a pie, the divine nature. Each person fully possesses all that it is to be divine, all that it is to be God, at one and the same time with all the other persons. So we neither, we neither confound the persons, nor do we divide up the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. Now here it's going to get very redundant, but it's for the purpose of being clear. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. 
For like as we are compelled by the certain Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion, and once again, not Roman Catholic, but universal or, or sort of, you get what I mean, uh, to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father, Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after another, none is greater or less than another. Which, which uh, of our three foundational truths is that affirming? Co-equal. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother born into the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. And that's not denying equality of being. That is saying that in the manhood there is a role of inferiority in the person of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, although He be God and man, yet He is not two but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of the substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, I don't believe that by the way, rose again the third day from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he sitteth on the right hand of the Father God Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. And that is the end of our slideshow, so you can turn that off. And that is the Athanasian Creed. So my reason for... My reason for... um going through the Athanasian Creed with you is just so that you could see how that is articulated. They affirm all three of our foundational truths while at the same time denying all of the three errors that creep up when you deny one of those foundational truths. And part of the last part of that creed had to do with the unity of the manhood and the deity of Christ, and we've done a different Sunday school class on that, what's called the hypostatic union, one person, two natures, divine nature, human nature, and one person that is Christ. So they answered both the doctrine of the Trinity and how it is that God could become a man in that creed. Okay, so I've left, well, 10 minutes or 15 minutes for questions. We dug in a little deeper. Nobody said they had any questions, so that's why I went through the whole thing. I mean, I could have done away with the creed and a lot of other stuff, but Sonny had a question first, and then I'll get to you back there. Yes. Oh, good. All of our questions were pretty much answered. That's what I was hoping. I was actually expecting that half the room would say, oh, I got questions, and then by the time we got to this point, everybody would say, no, I don't have any questions. But go ahead. No. Let me, she is asking, is it because she hasn't really understood fully this doctrine of the Trinity as I've laid it out here, is it possible that she hasn't been saved for the last 30 years? And I would say, um, well, I'd say, first of all, I don't know if it's possible or not that you might have not been saved for the last 30 years. But I would say that it's not, and this is what we described earlier because you kind of came in late. We described the difference between informal heresy and formal heresy. Uh, form, informal heresy is where you don't understand the truth fully, but you embrace what is true and what is revealed in Scripture and you affirm all of these three foundations, you would say there's one God. You would say Jesus is God. You would say that the three persons are equal. 
but in, but maybe not able to articulate it, maybe not able to sort of put all the pieces of the puzzle together, but you've got all the pieces there and you haven't denied any of those three foundational truths. If at one time you said, I didn't believe Jesus, I don't believe that Jesus is God. In fact, I believe he's a lesser being. And you were to say that to me right now, I do not believe in the deity of Christ. I do not believe that he is God in human flesh. I do not believe that he is equal with the Father. Then I would say that you are not saved. You cannot be saved because unless you believe that he is that, you can't be saved. So you can understand and know and believe that all three persons of the Trinity are God, but not be able to articulate it or sort of bring it all together. And and I'll be honest with you, I can I can no more understand this than how a worm can understand that somebody can be a being and a person together. Because God is that much further above us. But because I'm not able to understand everything about the Trinity doesn't mean that I'm not saved. It just simply means that I confess that there are things that I don't understand. Yeah. No, what, what we're saying is that you, there has to be a certain a core of knowledge that you understand and believe and know to be true in order to be saved. So what is my understanding of Jesus? Um, we're distinguishing between just because God regenerates me and he's the one who does the work doesn't mean that I don't understand anything about what's going on at the time. Um, we would say, and, th- and this is what the creeds would affirm, that if you deny these things, you're not within Orthodox Christianity. So there's a difference between fully understanding something and uh, sorry, there's a difference between embracing something without fully understanding it and outright understanding it and denying it and rejecting it and instead believing a heretical damning doctrine. And so that's the difference. So the understanding doesn't have to be perfect about complicated things in order to be saved. Right. You begin to grow in your understanding of things and you do as a Christian. Yeah, I didn't have a systematic the I mean, I didn't teach this lesson the moment I got saved. I didn't have a systematic course. I didn't take that. What I understood was who Jesus was, that he died for my sins, and that I was a sinner, and I understood that I needed to repent and be saved, and I was uh, repent and believe and I was saved. I was saved at that moment and I had I wouldn't have been able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity to save my life. If my life depended on it, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it. But I can tell you this that Jesus was God in human flesh and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin, and that I needed to repent and believe, and that's what's necessary for salvation. But understanding that first premise, if you get to the point where you say, well, I think I'm saved, but I deny everything you just said about the being of God, then, of course, that's something entirely different. Yeah, very good question. Any other questions? Lisa, that's right. Oh, very good. The son was with the father, and then he was born of a woman. So obviously he he didn't cease to be God, but he took upon himself a human nature. The second person of the son took upon himself a human nature. Did he, um, is he the same yesterday, today, and for, or, uh, tomorrow, or has he forever changed? Well, he is the same yesterday, today, and for, tomorrow because he is God, so he never changes in his nature. That is why the son never ceased to be God and never lost any of his deity to take upon himself humanity. But he is forever changed in the sense that now the human, the divine nature of the Son is forever united with humanity. So in heaven right now, Jesus Christ is the God-man in a glorified body. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity in a glorified body, forever united with our humanity. So he hasn't changed his nature. The nature of the Son did not change. But what he did was add humanity without confounding it without polluting either one. He added the human nature to himself, took upon himself that human nature, and now he is forever united 
deity and humanity in the person of the Son. And that was what the last half of that creed was about. Yeah, Jess. What does it mean to be begotten is what you're saying? What does it mean to be begotten? Begotten begotten is an unfortunate translation. It always has been ever since people thought it was ganea instead of ganao um, in the Greek. Begotten simply means unique. It doesn't mean to be created. It doesn't mean to be brought forth. It means unique. When we say that the Son is begotten of the Father, what we it, it refers to basically eternal generation. And I don't want to get into this too much. But C.S. Lewis likened it, and I don't agree with all C.S. Lewis's theology, but I think the analogy is good. If you can imagine two books, one sitting on top of another, the one book is held up by the other. The one book occupies the space on top of the other by virtue of the existence and the work of the first book. Now, imagine that the one is the Father and the one is the Son, and I'm not describing the nature of God, but the act of generation. It has always been that way. The Son has always been begotten of the Father, and the Spirit has always proceeded from the Father and the Son. So, and we're going to talk about this today in the sermon, that's the doctrine of subordination, not subordinationism, subordination. There is within the Trinity subordination. The Father came to do the will of the, sorry, the Son came to do the will of the Father. The Spirit is subordinate to the Father and the Son and always magnifies the Father and the Son. And so the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, has always proceeded and eternally proceeded from the Father and the Son. The Son has eternally been begotten of the Father and all three persons have eternally existed. I got a quote, and I'm not going to give it to you now because it's for the sermon. I want to steal all my thunder. But there's a quote uh, where J.C. Ryle basically says, "We get these glimpses at the nature of God where we sort of lift up the veil just a little bit, and we get to gaze in when these things are revealed to us in Scripture. And even just lifting up the veil and peeking into the nature of God, it's more than our eyes can take in. It's more than we have brains to understand." Some of these things seem contradictory, but you and I have to get to the point where we say, you know, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's a contradiction. Or just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. That's one of the most arrogant statements that anybody could ever make. I don't understand it, therefore it must be a contradiction. I don't understand it, therefore it must not be true. What, are you kidding me? Seriously, you know how much I don't understand and don't know? There's a lot of things that are true that I don't understand and don't know. We have to get to the point where we say, okay, I don't, I don't get how it is that the, the Son of God can be equal with the Father and be subordinate to the Father, and do all of the will of the Father, and for the Father to reveal things to the Son, and yet the Son always eternally know those things. It's just human language, human language lacks. We, we run up against this barrier where we just don't have words to describe these things. Scripture gives us these glimpses into it, but then our, our language just stops, almost at the veil itself. You just How do you describe that? Human language can't describe it. There are no words. There's no amount I could teach to this class for, from now till eternity. I would never be able to describe to you how these things are true. These things are just profound, profound mysteries. But to deny these things is to just make nonsense of Scripture. Because Scripture teaches that there is one being, that the Father is that God, that the Son is that God, that the Spirit is that God, but the three persons are not the same person. They're three different persons, one being, one essence. We don't confound the persons. We don't divide the substance. Debbie, did you have a question? Yeah, once I proof it and uh, get all the typos out of it, I could do that. If you email me or I could post it on Facebook or something like that. If you want it, let me know and I'd be happy to give it to you. The artwork, by the way, the triangle, that was done by Jason Duco. Jason, thanks for doing that. I sent him the analogy, told him what I wanted, and, and he did all the work on that. 
No, the typos were in my work, not yours. <laughs> Your work was pure and clean. <clears throat> all right, any other questions? You guys understand all this? Good. No, you're not going to understand it. You're just not going to understand it. I, I, I am thankful that I don't understand it all. But we affirm these things. This is the core of our faith, and we just we need to know um, how these things can be true, what is revealed, and we affirm them, even though we can't get our arms around it. We can't even begin to get our arms around the glory that comes off of these things, let alone the things themselves. Human language cannot even, human intellect cannot understand them, and human language can't even begin to describe them. But we can say we know these things from Scripture. There is one being. There are three persons. The three persons are not the same persons. The three persons are three persons who are all the one being. And I, I love this picture or analogy. And I gave this last week. The Father possesses all of the divine substance and essence. All that is to be God, the Father possesses all of it in its totality. At the very same time, the Son possesses all that it means, the substance and being of God. And at the very same time, the Spirit possesses all of the substance and being of God. They don't share it in proportion. Each person possesses all of it equally, fully, and for eternity. What did God do? I get asked this one question once in a while, and with this I'll close. What did God do for eternity before he created the universe? What was God doing? Do you, do you know? Well, if you have three persons in the one, the one being of God, what was God doing for eternity? You know what God was doing for eternity? He was enjoying uninterrupted, pure fellowship, communion, and intimacy with himself. The Father can speak to the Son, and the Son can speak to the Father, and the Father can speak to the Spirit, and the Spirit can speak to the Father and the Son. And you have revealed to us in certain places in Scripture inter-Trinitarian dialogue. Read Psalm 2. Read Hebrews 1. Inter-Trinitarian dialogue. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son converse with one another. Now, if you were an infinite being, perfect in all your attributes, perfect in intellect, wisdom, and beauty, in three persons, do you think you would ever run out of things to talk about? Or joys to share with one another? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. What were the Father, Son, and Spirit doing before creation? They were enjoying perfect inter-Trinitarian fellowship with one another. He didn't create us because he had a man-shaped hole in his heart that he thought you only you could fill. It's not the way he created us. He created us for his glory. He created us to show off his attributes to his creation. And then, but before he created anything, there was perfect fellowship and communion. All three persons of the Trinity, conversing, interacting, enjoying intimacy and fellowship, communion with one another. It's a beautiful thing. Mystery beyond mysteries for us, though. Lynn. Does it mean that before God became man, he didn't know what alone was? God has never known what alone is. God has never been alone. Right. And in eternity past, there was never a time when he was alone. He was sufficient in himself. All right, let's pray. Father, these things are too great for us and too mysterious and beyond words. Um, we are grateful that you have revealed what you have revealed. Give us faith to embrace and accept those things and to uh, think rightly about these things. We, we do not want to be either formal or informal heretics. We want to think rightly about your truth as you've given it to us. Thank you for sanctifying us by your truth. Thank you for giving us minds to think and comprehend. And we pray, O oh God, that you would continue to reveal to us the glories of your nature and your being as we appreciate you and worship you as our triune and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.